Last week, we started this series called Joy in the Journey, and uh, I ask you this question, uh, how much joy is in your journey right now? Like, all of life is, is a journey, um, and there is, it's either kind of full of joy, um, or we, don't, we have very little joy in our life. And I gave you this scale because I discovered that some social scientists, like when they measure joy, this is kind of one of the ways that they're trying to figure out how joyful people are. Um, so if you have a lot of joy, just circle one. Or if you have very little joy, you circle one. Um, if you have a lot of joy, you circle ten. And I asked kind of where are you at on that scale? And I'm, I'm kind of just challenging you here with these, 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 these sermons that I'm giving you just to see if you don't, if it doesn't change your kind of level of joy. Right, if you apply what I'm giving you to your life. Um, because here's the thing about Christianity, is that we all, we all want joy. Like we, we all desire to be more joyful, and Christianity actually teaches us uh, that in a way it is about joy. Jesus, before he goes to the cross, he prays. He, he prays that your joy will be full. Uh, we're told, um, as we read through Galatians, that one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Uh, when you read through the Scriptures, what you're told is you're told to rejoice, um, over 200 times, about 202 times from what I can tell, and then you're told that like your life will have joy um, or to be joyful about 203 times. And, and so the Christian life consists consist of joy, and so I want you to experience joy. Kind of the, uh, the motivation around this message and kind of my hero um, in this and uh, what, I, what I hope kind of comes out of our experience is what I read in Acts. When I was reading through Acts recently, I noticed um, a man named Philip, and Philip had just watched his friend uh, be killed. He was, his friend was stoned to death for sharing Jesus um, with the people that were around there. And Philip had to basically run away from this place because he too would have been killed. Um, and, and so while he was on the run, he goes to a place called Samaria, and I shared with you last week, Samaria was not a very good place for a Jewish person to go. Um, there were religious tensions, uh, political tensions, and, and racial reasons that he would have not wanted to go to Samaria. And so Philip goes to Samaria, and he, he, share, he shares Jesus in Samaria. And the, the whole experience of Philip in this place, this place where he probably really wasn't welcome just because of who he is, is summed up by this. It says in Acts 8.8, 8, there was so much joy in that city. There was so much joy in that city. And so I challenge you to think about this. I challenge you to think about this. If this is true of Philip, is this, if this can be true of one man going into a city um, and bringing joy to an entire city, uh, think about what God could do to you and through you uh, in, your, in, in your church, in your community, in your family, or at work. I, I believe that God can use you to bring joy where, wherever you go. But the truth is, is that you have to experience it. And that's my goal for you, is for you to experience joy in such a way that you can take joy to other people and that people can experience it because they have been around you. The problem with all of this is I believe that we have lost the perspectives needed to really experience joy ourselves. We've lost those perspectives around really important areas of our life to experience joy. And so my, my goal is for you to experience joy. My thesis is if you will take these four areas of your life that I'm going to be talking about and have been started talking about last week, and, and if you apply these principles and these understandings to your life, you will experience more joy. Last week I talked about the need to have an understanding of how to have joy in the midst of hard times because hard times are going to come. Like you're, you're going to suffer. 
like it's going to get tough and you need hope in the midst of that, right? That if you don't have that, right, you're never going to be able to experience really Christian joy at its core. This week, I'm going to talk about the family. And, and if you've got your notes, I'm just going to give you kind of what I think is, is something to kind of think about here, but this, this one line for you to think about, and here it is, is that I am responsible to, not for my family. All right? I'm responsible to, not for my family. Now, some of you are thinking about that, but others of you are really relieved. All right? <laughs> you're, you're, just, you're ready to go now. Like, thank you, Pastor, for lifting that weight off of me because I didn't want to be responsible for them to begin with. My dad used to always tell me uh, when I got upset with my family, right, you can pick your friends, you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your family, right? So that, that there is just going to probably lift a weight off of you, but I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Before I do, I want to share a study with you, and this study has some good news and it has some bad news um, in relation to joy. It says, said basically joy comes from three different places, um, from what the study could tell. Um, in the first place, uh, you can't really control. You don't have a whole lot of control over it. The first, the first um, indicator that you'll experience joy or won't experience a whole lot of joy is actually has to do with your family. Like it's your genetic, genetic makeup. It's, it's what your, your parents have passed down on you, to you. So like if you don't experience a whole lot of joy in your life, um, I'm told that about 48% of that comes from your parents. So you can just blame your parents uh, for your situation. You can go ahead and blame your family for that. The second, you have a little bit of control over, but not a lot. About 40% of whether or not you're going to express joy comes from your present circumstances. Like, so whatever is going on in your life, right? If you just got into college, you're excited um, and you're happy. If you got denied, you're, you're sad. Uh, you're not going to experience a whole lot of joy. About 40% of any situation um, uh, or your present circumstances affect how you express joy. This is why it's really important uh, to be centered in the gospel, so that you can have a perspective that is over all of that. And then you have about 12% that you can control. Uh, that's, that's the good news, is that 12% of the joy in your life, you're actually able to control and cultivate on a regular basis. And so um, I'm going to talk about 12, the 12% 12 uh, today that you are able to control. And what you're able to control is you're able to control your attitudes and your actions. You're able to control your attitudes in your actions. And so when I say you're responsible to, that's what I mean. Um, now, I know that some of you say, I have small children and I am responsible for them. Like, they'll get me in trouble, all those sorts of things. Well, your goal for those small children is actually for them at some point in their life to be able to make their own decisions. Right now, you might be responsible for them, but what you're trying to do with them is get them to a point where they are making their own decisions without you. Like, that's the ultimate goal. Now, we're talking about family um, second for this reason. Nobody can rob you of joy more than your family members, right? Can I get an amen? All right, thank you. All right, yeah. <laughs> All right, nobody can rob you of joy more than your family members um, because these are the people that are close to, the closest to you. So I know some of you are asking this, and we're going to get to the text here, but what are, what are you responsible to? We're going to take a look at Ephesians here. Uh, Ephesians 5, verse 33, and then I'm going to read through uh, chapter 6, verse 4. So if you have your Bibles, I want to grab those out. This is also in your notes. And here's what the Lord says through Paul in Ephesians. He said, let, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, 
and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what we're going to do is we're going to pull out three principles from this. Um, and then I'm going to give you a fourth, uh, something that you're going to need to know. And here's the first one right, for everybody, is that if you're married, you need to love and respect your spouse. Right? If you're married, right, to experience joy, you need to love and respect your spouse. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because we just got done in a series of, about a month ago on marriage, but this is your, your number one and most important relationship in your life if you're married, and this will or will not bring the most joy in your life if you do it right. It, it will. You know, some of you have heard, right, um, happy wife, happy life. All right, now, um, that's a, you know, that's, that's probably not the greatest thing. It's probably better to say happy spouse, happy house, um, because I don't know about your house, but I'm probably just as temperamental, if not more, than my own wife. Um, and so this is, this is true, though, right? If, if you are able to cultivate a, love, a loving and respectful relationship with your spouse, you will experience more joy. And so here's one of the ways that you should do this. Somebody gave me a book for Christmas, um, and I, I skimmed through it really quickly uh, a while back, actually. They gave it to me. Um, I'm losing it right now. Uh, but it's, oh, it's called A Complete Free World. Now, I don't really recommend it because there's a lot of uh, Bible verses taken out of context in it um, and a lot of kind of like ad hoc spirituality. Uh, but, it, but it does make an interesting point. Um, it, it says this, and this is true. Like, the, the less you complain, the happier you are. Uh, the less you complain, the happy, 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 happier you are. And so here's, here's just what you, need to, here's what you need to know. Here's your application point for this. Don't complain about your spouse. Right? Don't, don't complain about your spouse. Especially don't do it in front of people. Right? Uh, don't do it in front of people. Don't do it on social media. Right? Don't do it in front of them. Right? Now, now, I, I'll tell you, like, right, y you've got something you want to complain about your spouse for because they're not perfect, and, and neither than you. So, like, if you need help, there, there are people that you can go to. I encourage you to go to a counselor. I encourage you to come to me, right? Um, but don't complain about your spouse publicly. Instead, speak positively about them. Right? Whenever you get a chance, speak positively about your spouse. And, and I promise you, right, it, it'll bring you more joy, right? It'll make you think about the qualities of that person that, that they had that made you want to marry them in the first place. I remember my wife and I were in an argument, and I'm pretty sure I was probably criticizing her for something. Um, and she shot back. She said, well, what does that make you? You're the one who married me, right? She said, you chose me. And, and there's truth to that, right? And so you have, you have to think about that, right? When you speak positively about your spouse, not only are you going to experience more joy, but they're going to experience joy. And that's the whole, that's, that's what we're trying to do here. We want other people to, to experience joy. So happy spouse, happy house. The, the second principle I want to give you here is, is this, is that all of us are to honor our parents. All of us are to honor our parents. Now, Paul here, he specifically speaks into um, children uh, who are in the homes right now, like who are, are still kind of in the household um, under the direction of families. And uh, what he actually says for you um, is, is obey. Here, I'm going to read it. It says, Ephesians 6.1, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So if you're a teenager here with me right now, our kids are probably with the, the children's ministry. Like just give me a minute here. Give me, give me a few minutes. So eyes up here, right? 
This, this word is written for you. And, and here's what the Lord wants for you. And this will bring joy to you. It's obedience. I, I know you may or may not believe this, but your parents are a gift to you. They, they are a gift that God has given you. And what your parents are, are trying to do, right, if they are here, especially if they are here with you, they are trying to teach you how to love and obey God. And you need that in your life, right? Well, I was talking with a friend the other day, um, and uh, there's this idea um, that we are most free out there when there are no rules in our lives, when there are no boundaries in our lives. The truth is that is not true, right? If there are no rules, if there are no boundaries, if there's nothing to be obedient to, rather we are a slave to our impulses. And we are, we are a slave to doing whatever it is that we desire at the moment. And it, and it brings a lot of harm to our lives and a lot of destruction. And, and your parents are there to keep you from harming yourself unnecessarily, to teach you how to control your desires. Uh, I, I've taught this before, and so maybe some of you have heard me say this. Um, but but did you, you know what the fifth commandment is, right? What is it, everybody? Oh, yeah, honor your, I'm not, this is not a trick question. All right, honor your parents. Honor your parents. Now, what are the first four commandments about? Right? They're about loving God, following God. And, and so this is really interesting here, is that the first four commandments are all about a relationship with God. And the, the fifth happens to be uh, about obeying our parents, right? And honoring our parents. I believe that this is there for a reason. Like the Lord is teaching us while we're young that if we can't obey our parents, if we can't love our parents, if we can't honor our parents while we're young, like we will never be able to do that with the Lord. Like it is, it is training so that as we grow, if we desire to follow Christ ourselves, if we were never able to follow and obey our parents, it's really unlikely that we'll be able to follow the Lord as, as we get older. And so you just need to know that. You need to know that. And I'm going to just, I'm going to kind of challenge you here and like ask you, like if you're not experiencing a whole lot of joy right now, like as a teen, just ask yourself, like how, how is your relationship with the Lord? Like where are you at with God right now? Right? And the second, like where are you at with your parents? If you get your relationships right, right, you can, you can experience a lot of joy in your life. But if those are wrong, right, life, it, life is really tough, right? And it's really hard to experience joy. Now, this is, this is not just a principle for teens, actually. This is a principle for adults as well. Um, Paul is specifically speaking to, to, to people living in the households of their parents here. Um, but this is, a, this is a principle that transcends that if you read the scriptures. And not only that, like, uh, this is something that I've discovered, and all of you know this is true, like, we all desire to have uh, a good relationship with our parents, right? There, there's not one of us, I think, no matter how ho- old we get, that we don't desire a relationship with our parents. Like, some of them are rockier than others, um, but that is a God-given desire. And uh, so I, I tried to, as I was studying and reading, um, I came across a passage uh, that I've been thinking about a lot recently um, when I was studying a while back and, and trying to figure out. And, and many of you know the story of Noah, right? Uh, you, you know about Noah. God 
looks at the world, and everybody's just bad except for Noah. And it says, basically, the Bible teaches that there's one righteous man left on the ho- in the whole world, and his name is Noah. And God uses Noah to build an ark. All the animals then um, go in the ark. Noah is a savior-like figure um, in which God uses to basically save humanity um, and all of the earth. Uh, well, the ending of Noah is really weird. Have you ever read, like, the ending of the Noah story? Because most of us kind of read, like, the children's version, and it stops with the rainbow, right? But that's, the, the, it keeps going. Like, it ke- continues to talk about Noah, and, and I'm going to read you the ending to Noah here. Here's what it says in Genesis, Genesis uh, 9, 20 through 24. It says, After the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground, and he planted a vineyard. One day he drank some wine that he had made, and he became drunk, drunk and lay naked outside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. Then Shem and Japheth took a robe and held it over their shoulders and backed into the tent to cover their father. As they did this, they looked the other way so they would not see him naked. Then Noah woke up from his stupor. He learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done. Then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. Ham. Have you ever read that? You ever wondered what that meant? Like, what's, what's God doing with this? Yeah. Um, growing up, my dad and mom were both pretty involved in our lives. Uh, my dad coached peewee football. He coached Little League Baseball, and he, he did all of that. And so, like, as a, a, a peewee football player, one of the things um, that you did is you always kind of idolized your dad. You heard how he played in high school and all of those different things, and um, my dad was a, he was a good coach, and he was generally, like, really good with kids and watching all of this, but one of the things that you, I, I did is just, like, I thought my dad was Superman. Like, like my dad could have destroyed any of those other fathers right out there on the field. <sighs> yeah, I, I mean, this is who I thought my dad was, uh, but then as I kind of continued to grow, and I began to kind of have like a realistic understanding of my father. I realized my father was even shorter than me, um, right? Uh, and if you haven't been next to me, right, I'm not real tall. Um, thanks for this platform. Uh, and I started to look at him next to some of the other fathers. My best friend in high school, his dad was middle linebacker in the college that he was at, and he still holds like the tackle record there. Like in reality, right, like my dad probably didn't want to mess with him. Um, but as we grow, like, we kind of, like, learn these things uh, about our parents, right? We learn of the shortcomings, we learn about their imperfections, and we actually kind of, kind of struggle with this. And this happens, this happens to us all. And, and this is really kind of what this text is about here, is, like, what happens when our fathers or mothers or our parents are exposed, like, for who they really are, like, what happens when we see things in our parents that are like, w- w- wait a second. I-, I didn't know that about you. Like, wait a second. How could you do that? Like, you've, you've been there. You, you know what that's like. And, and w- what this text is asking us is, what are you going to do about it when those, when those things come up? Like, w- when you see the nakedness of your father or your mother, like, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to be like Ham, who goes out and, and basically he's kind of like telling his brothers from what we get, like he's going out and he's saying, hey, look at our father. Like what, what, what's going on with this? 
Or are you going to be like Shem and Japheth, who acknowledged like their father has made a mistake, like their father has messed up, their father sinned. They, they know, they, 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 they saw it, right? But, but they, cho- they chose not to expose their father. They chose not to dwell on it. Um, it was a very different reaction. Now I want you to see Noah's reaction um, to Ham here and kind of what takes place, because this is really important, I think, for all of us um, and for those of you with children. Noah look, wakes up and um, he curses not Ham, but his son. So what does that mean? Right? I, I, I think right, what's going on here is basically the scripture is showing us uh, that through Ham's family, there's just going to be like this continual culture of dishonor that is going to be passed down. Like this continual culture of unforgiveness, this continual culture of anger, this continual culture of shame that is, that is passed down to Canaan and his relatives, where Japheth and Shem are going to continue on a completely different path. And one of the things that I just want to remind us all, right, like the study showed, is we all have a proclivity to be like our parents. Like, you know it's true, right? When you've gone to parent your own children or whatever, you've done the same things, you've made the same mistakes, and as, as we grow older, we make, this, we make mistakes, our parents make mistakes. And the truth is, right, we need as much grace for our parents as they've given us. Right? Not only that, right, your children are watching. Right? If they hear you talking bad about their grandparents, right, you, you, you are probably cultivating a culture of dishonor. I'm not saying you agree with everything they've done or you celebrate the mistakes that they have made. Right? But what kind of culture are you creating um, in your own family? We all struggle with this because we believe that our parents are heroes. Right? The truth is they're not. Right? Whatever you idolize, you demonize. And we just need to know that there are no heroes besides Jesus. That's what the Bible makes really clear. And so that's what's really scary about just reading children's, sometimes sometimes just reading children's Bibles all the time because they make all these people out to be heroes. But when you read through the Bible, what you discover is even the most righteous man on the planet at the time, right, is still a sinner and still needs forgiveness and still needs grace, right? So adults, like, your parents need that too, right? So honor your parents, the second principle, and here's the third, is disciple your children. Disciple your children. Um, we're told here in verse 4, it says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I use the word distri- disciple for that reason is because we're told to discipline and instruct. Um, so parents, here's, here's what you need to know, is that your moral and spir- the moral and spiritual care of your children actually belongs to you, um, and the church is supposed to help with that. Like, we're, we're supposed to aid in that. We're the community that you have come around so that we can help you um, cultivate a, a life of discipleship into, into your children. We love to use this passage when we dedicate children in our church, and it's in Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7, and it says, These words I command to you. This is God speaking to the people of God and to the parents of um, the children in the community of God. And he says, These words I command to you today shall be on your heart. Now, this is the goal of discipleship. This is the goal of discipleship, is for God's word to be on your heart. So how are you going to do this? Um, this isn't the goal of discipleship, but this is the beginning of the discipleship. So how are you going to do this? 
um, as you disciple children. In verse 7, it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them. When will you teach? You will do it when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And so you are discipling your children all the time. You are disciplining your children all the time. Discipleship, the root word of discipline is disciple. You get that? And so there are two building blocks here that we need to know um, when it comes to discipling our children. One, we're told that we need to teach. We need to teach our children. Now, Christian discipline is not about behavior modification. It's about heart transformation. It's not about behavior modification. It's about heart transformation. So when you're disciplining your children, like that's a good thing, right? Timeout's not a bad thing. Um, However you do discipline, it's not a bad thing. But here's what your children need to know. And this is really hard to do, and I am not good at this. They need to know the why. They need to know the why, right? It, It can't always be just because dad or mom told you to. Right? Because here's the thing, that doesn't change hearts. And so this is like what we try to do imperfectly all the time because dad told you to is so much easier. But like Judah, you don't hit your sister because God created your hands to protect your sister and to serve her. Right? Son, daughter, whatever, you don't use those words. Emily taught me this one, right? You don't use those words because God created your mouth to praise him. Right? Like, like, that's heart transformation. You're teaching your child, all right? We don't do this because, because this is who you are, right? This is who you are in Christ. This is what God wants for you. And, and so that's more or less what discipleship is about. Because here's the thing, and I mentioned this, I mentioned this earlier, right? You want your children to behave when you're not around, right? And the only way that takes place, like, is if they are changed themselves. Like, if, if they believe that following, following the Lord is better than not. And, and so the why is important. So teaching is important. The second thing you need is time. Right? It, it says, when are you teaching? You're doing it all the time when you walk, when you rise, when you, you go here. And, and so basically this implies that you need a relationship. Right? You have got to make time to have a relationship with your children. Right, if you're going to disciple them. Rules, rules without a relationship lead to rebellion. It, it's, just, it's just the way it works. You, they may rebel anyways, but you've got to have a relationship with your children. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Ephesians. He says, do not provoke your children to anger. Um, the idea is not to be domineering here. And, and if you don't have a relationship with your children and you're just really like a disciplinarian all the time and that's how they see you, that's a domineering relationship. Right? If you're not at having moments of joy with them, um, if you're not teaching them things, if you're not spending time with them, it, it's, it's a domineering relationship. Now, the problem with this is, like, we are at a dif- we're at a disadvantage um, than the people in the Old Testament and the New Testament are at, were at. Because um, the children went to work with their parents. Like, or their parents set up shop, like, right out of their home. And so their children, like, saw their mom and dad working, like, all the time. And they were part of the family business. And so you just happened to be around your, your children um, pretty often. And so you have to be intentional to establish a relationship with your children uh, because you don't have that kind of relationship. I was talking to a friend last week. Um, he's here, Alan. Um, he coaches football. One of the things that he said, he said, you know, my kids are starting to get older and that's, that's a job that takes a lot of time, especially in the fall, obviously. He said, so as you come out and you're around our players, 
Um, if you want to bring your son out to be around them and around you, you can do that. And so some of us have to get creative um, if we have a job that takes a lot of our time to try to get our family around us. Um, and the truth is, like, all of you want this. Like, you want a relationship with your family. Like, that, that brings you joy, right, to, have, to spend time with your kids. And that brings your, your kids joy when they spend time with you. There, there's, there's no one in your children's life who they want to be closer than to you if you're a parent. That, that's, that's, you are the person that they want to have a relationship with above all others. And, and so that will bring you joy when you're around them. So I've given you three things that you're responsible to do according to this text. Now, I want to give you something that you're responsible to know. Right? Here's what you're responsible to know, and this is really what Ephesians is about. Now, I didn't give you this, this passage, but Ephesians 2.8, you're not saved. You're saved by grace through faith, right? Not by works so that no one can boast. But here's the idea, is that Jesus was perfect, but his family wasn't. Jesus was perfect, but his family wasn't. Like, I can give you all of this, right? And this is just like a heavy burden on you, because none of you are going to do this perfectly. Like, none of you are going to do this right. And so you need to, you need to remember this principle. Jesus' family was not perfect. I, I love the story in Luke. Uh, Jesus' family, they've gone to Jerusalem. They just celebrated. Um, they've gone to the temple and they're a day's journey or so away from the temple, and they're walking. And I just imagine how this must have, must have played out. Uh, you know, um, Joseph asking Mary, hey, have you seen Jesus? Because they're with a lot of people. This is how they traveled. And Mary, go, Mary going, I thought you had Jesus. And then, you lost the Son of God? Like, like so, so they figure this out. It took them three days to find Jesus. They had left him in the temple. Right? Don't get any ideas because Pastor Mindy does not want to spend three days with your kids. <laughs> but the truth is, it's like none of us get this right. You know, I've told some of you this story before, but like Emily and I, we just thought we were going to be rock star parents because, right, we just should be. Um, and we're going to disciple our kids better than anybody else. Of course, they're going to be Christians. Like it's just so easy to do. And so we have this bedtime routine. We read them a couple books. We read them a Bible story. And um, then I can't sing, but my wife can. I like to think I can. And so we're going we're gonna to sing a hymn or a song every night. And Jesus Loves Me is one of the few that like, I have memorized. And so we start to sing our, our son, Jesus Loves Me, before we're getting ready to put him down. And like, he just would not let us do it. And we kept trying and trying. And then finally, he, he started yelling every night, No, Jesus! No, Jesus! Like before going to bed. And so we just had to give up. Like, no more Jesus loves me for my son. Now, it's been about a year or so, so we might, like, try to incorporate it back. Uh, but, like, like, my son was yelling, no Jesus at me. Um, never thought that would happen. I thought he would love it. Jesus' brothers, uh, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but why Jesus was alive, like, it, it, he didn't, they didn't believe in him. I love the way that John puts it in um, 7.5. It says, for even his own brothers did not believe him. Like, John makes that very clear. Even his own brothers did not believe him. Now, Jesus would have lived with his brothers roughly 30 years. Like, uh, so, like, if, if he, because they would have lived in the same house. Like, they were like millennials. They just stayed, right? Um, like, Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't leave. So get off their backs, by two, by the way. Like, they're just being like Jesus. Um, so he, he just stayed, right? And they would, because they had to work together. Like I said, the family worked together. And, and so, um, his brothers had seen everything he had done. They had been a part of his ministry, kind of, because they had seen him. And they thought he was crazy. A lot of them did. They told him to stop doing some of the things that, that he was doing. 
Uh, one of Jesus' brothers, we know some of his brothers actually started to believe, but it wasn't until after the resurrection. James is one of those. Like, this is one of the reasons that I, I, I believe that, that Jesus is a Savior, and that is true, is because one of his brothers ended up saying, yes, this guy's God, right? That, that, I, I know <laughs> my brothers would never say that about me, and I would never say that about my brothers. Now, here's what's really interesting. is like Jesus didn't make that decision for them. Like, like Jesus, Jesus didn't choose to control his brothers. Like, like God didn't choose to make his own brothers believe in him. And, and the truth is, like, you can't make your family members believe. You can't make your family members behave the way you would like them to behave. Right? Uh, all you can do is just show them Jesus. Uh, all you can do is tell them about Jesus. All you can do is pray that they receive Jesus. All you can do is hope that they follow Jesus. Right? So just, just keep it up because you don't know when it will happen. Jesus' mother. Uh, imagine for a moment. Uh, Jesus' mother watched her own son suffer on the cross. Who, who do you think was suffering more? Like, I don't know. I'm not going to compare those. But moms, just think about that for a moment. Watched her own son suffer on the cross. Now here's what you need to know. Is that Jesus suffered on the cross, right? So that your relationship could be restored with God the Father. But it's beyond that. Jesus suffered not only so that your relationship could be restored with God the Father, and so that you could understand, right, eternal forgiveness, perfect forgiveness, but so that your relationship could be restored for the people that you're sitting next to right now. For the people that you're going to leave here and go sit next to. Jesus died so that you would have it in your heart to forgive those who have harmed you. Right? And for some of you, that's your family members. Right? And some of you, you need to look at the cross. And you need to ask God, who do I need to forgive in my family? What relationships need to be restored? Who do I need to realize like I can't control? Who do I have to believe that, yeah, like our relationship's not perfect, but I'm still called to love them? Who is that? I, I, I believe that if, if you allow yourself to forgive them, if you allow themselves, yourself, to allow them to just make the decisions that they're going to make, remembering that you're not really responsible for, you're only responsible to, right? that can bring some joy to your life because you're not God. Right? That's good news. Right? That's good news that God has provided you a way for you to forgive and understand that you're not God. You can't change them. You can't control them. Right? But God still loves them. God has provided a way for you to do that. That can bring you some joy. Let us pray. Father, we all want to experience the joy that you promise us. We pray that our families will be a source of that joy. Most importantly, I ask that you'll help each one of us to be a source of joy to our family. 
We pray that our spouses feel like they are loved and respected. I pray that our parents feel honored. I ask that you help us to disciple our children well. I pray that you lift the burden of any guilt or shame that has been placed upon us, maybe by ourselves, maybe by somebody else. Father, some of us look at our families and we are deeply wounded because of the brokenness. So let us receive your grace at this time and by the power of your Spirit, help us to extend it to others. Finally, Father, we pray that our tithes and our offerings that we're about to take at this time are a proper reflection of our love for you and for others. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.